With supply chains becoming more complex, you need to stay on top of the latest logistics developments. So if you work with logistics, you need the Beyond the Box podcast from Maersk. It's the easy way to keep up to date with everything from digital disruption in logistics to the need for supply chain resilience in today's market. Find out more and keep ahead of the game with the Beyond the Box podcast on logistics insights at maersk.com slash insights. I'm much more concerned about AIs that are able to produce hyper-captivating media and totally capture, like perfectly capture human attention. And this is the same debate as like, are you more afraid of, like when you read the book 1984 and you read the book Brave New World, like which of those is more horrifying or like more plausible? And I find like Brave New World to be far more plausible, like a world that contains and controls human free will through through, pleasure through pleasure yeah through the perfect application of pleasure this is finding founders a podcast showcasing the vibrant entrepreneurial community across the world and our journey to find the founders responsible What you just heard was a little snippet from our virtual summit this past Monday on the future of artificial intelligence with one of our past founders, Dalton Combs. Don't worry if you missed it because we are about to play the full live interview right now. If you don't want to miss the next live event and the opportunity to interact directly with our community of founders, go to our website, findingfounderspodcast.com and subscribe to our newsletter. Trust me, it's awesome. Anyway... Without further ado, let's start the event. Today, we'll be delving into AI, the applications today, and some of the implications we'll have on our future. And the structure of this event will go something like this. So we'll have a short introduction of Dalton, then we'll delve into like the meat of AI. And then at the end, we'll open up the floor to questions. But first, Dalton, could you introduce yourself and uh, give a little bit about your background and how you became an industry leader in the field of artificial intelligence? Sure. Uh, Thanks for having me. So uh, as a little bit of background on me, uh, I was really into neuroscience and uh, things like the qualia and the mind-body problem and where intelligence comes from as an undergrad. And so I decided to go to grad school for neuroscience. And I started off working on non-invasive brain-machine interface. So looking at how to directly interface computers uh, with the brain and vice versa. And eventually my PhD turned into a study of uh, motivation and why people do the things they do, like what those like really deep motives are inside of us. Uh, because I've, like, I've found that to be the most interesting thing about an intelligence is this recursive wanting that intelligent things like humans are really good at. Uh, And that led to uh, this conviction that human behavior and human motivation was going to be one of the big sleeper technologies in AI. So everyone knew that vision was going to be huge. Everyone knew that there were going to be these really transformative applications of uh, AI. And I had a conviction that human behavior was going to be one that no one saw coming. And so that's when I founded uh, Boundless. And Boundless focused on trying to make behavior change AIs available to any developer who wanted to use them. So any developer who wanted to change an end end user's behavior could use our SDK to build a habit, break a habit, uh, and change what users want. Could you uh, describe a few like applications that you use this technology in, just like briefly about some of those success stories? Yeah, so um, we worked with a social media company um, to help make posts uh, to basically help reduce cyberbullying. So you tar- you figure out which users are most likely to uh, send cyberbully kind of posts, and then you behavior shape them away from doing that. Um, we also helped uh, pharmaceutical companies to get people to stick to a drug regime so that they didn't have complications of going on and on, on and off a drug uh, over time. Uh, and then a lot of uh, health behavior change. So getting people to stop smoking, um, 
be more physically active so they don't have to go back into the hospital for cardiovascular surgery, those sorts of things. Hmm. And then um, you kind of like leverage this position at Boundless uh, to Thrive. Can you describe what happened there really quick? Yeah. So Thrive, uh, this was, so acquisition closed about six months ago. Uh, Thank you. (laughs) Uh, And Thrive was focusing on uh, the like B2B to C application of wellness technology. So they make products. We make products now that uh, help encourage people to pick up uh, healthy habits or change their behavior. And the, they sell it to, so, you know, we sell 5,000 seats or 10, like 50,000 seats to Ernst and Young. Mm. And then they give those seats to their employees and, uh, we joined to help make that software more effective so that when users download it, they're more likely to pick up the healthy behaviors they select. Uh, and that was the goal of the acquisition was to bring in our technology and our team's expertise to uh, the market, the very large market that Thrive had uh, identified. Hmm. Awesome. So I guess let's get right into it. I think uh, a good framing point for just talking about artificial intelligence is starting with a little bit of history because there's been like ebbs and flows and excitement surrounding this technology, which like literally (laughs) dates back to the inception of computers in the 1940s. At that point, right, the leaders in the field were like, okay, we have computers and now like human level general intelligence is 20 years away. Yeah, just around the corner. (laughs) Just around the corner. And it's been around the corner since the 40s. Um, So can you talk about like why have we always thought that artificial intelligence and around is around the corner, and why is that like not necessarily true, but maybe true today? Yeah, so a big part of why it's always seemed like a sister around the corner is we'd make a breakthrough where we thought we finally understood what it is that humans do, like what brains do, and what intelligence is about. And since we finally figured it out, like we're just going to be able to do it now. And it always, it has always turned out to be harder than we expected. So (laughs) the first big AI wave, uh, the first AI spring was all about, uh, you know, this is Wiener and Chomsky and a lot of great stuff. Like all of the stuff that we still use today came out of that. So you got natural language, you got uh, connectionist models, which became neural nets. Can you explain like, just like, I mean, I guess a brief definition of each of those terms you're bringing up, like natural language processing. And- natural language processing is uh, one of the fundamental things that intelligent, like one of the fundamental aspects of human intelligence is language and the ability mm-hmm. to communicate. And so there were a bunch of breakthroughs made using computers to figure out um, what communication is and what a natural, like what human language is. And we made a bunch of progress in getting machines to produce natural looking human language and understand natural human language. Uh, and it's obviously much better now, but a lot of that is built on the breakthroughs that they made in the fifties and sixties. Mm. And then connectionism is this idea that you have like a neuron and the neuron takes inputs and then it integrates those inputs somehow and then gives an output. And then you get a billion of these together and intelligence just kind of emerges out of that, uh, like that soup of information. And so like, was it just like, okay, we have this soup of information and that like, it's kind of like the same conditions that like consciousness kind of evolved out of. Yeah. So it early on, you know, they proved, you know, they proved first of all that like connect um, these little point processors are Turing complete. So you can do any type of computation with a neural network was one mm-hmm. of the first really exciting things. And then they built some toy systems and showed some of the really, um, uh, basic things you could do with uh, like building logic systems out of these uh, connections. Um, but they didn't really go much beyond that. They were basically toys in yeah. the 60s. And that was because of, you know, limitations in memory capacity and processor speed. Yeah. Yeah. So it was the, it's always like the theories have always run up against these, these, yeah, these limits of uh, the technology and the ability of like the substrate. And so, you know, some of them are theoretical, like most of the progress in language has been theoretical. Um, It's not just a computational problem. Like we actually understand language better than we used to, Mm -hmm. but you know, we don't, we don't understand neural nets terribly more than we used to. And the, in the ways in which we do understand them better, it's because we've been able to test them at Mm -hmm. like larger scales that this wasn't possible 
um, in the 60s. Yeah, so because we had that first kind of like 1956 at Dartmouth College with the send 10 scientists, and that's where we got the development of neural nets, autonomous theory, and like the study of intelligence as a whole. And then we kind of reached the limits of of uh, like memory capacity and processor speed, and that was like the first AI winter. Yeah, um, it was the first winter. We hit that wall, yeah. and all the funding dried up. And so what kind of spurred that second interest in AI? So the second wave was all about, like the thing that really came out of it was what's called expert systems. And this is the idea that you can take human understanding and break it down into facts or rules. And when you build those rules back up, you get something that's pretty smart. And so there was some basic, there was the next generation of natural language systems uh, that made basic chatbots. There was expert systems, which like is basically like TurboTax, where like it asks you questions and then it can file your taxes for you. Like that was revolutionary in the eighties, and so that those expert systems, they were like they were diagnosed. Like the diagnostic systems were big, so like they, in the eighties, they thought they were going to be able to replace doctors with these expert systems. The problem is like uh, the the medical expert systems kept uh, kept diagnosing men as pregnant. <laughs> or like, like you get these ridiculous things out of the expert systems because they lacked common sense. And that's mm. what sort of dried up that route of inquiry. Like expert systems hit their limit when they required common sense, when they got too close to like real mm. problems. Mm. So then it dried up again. And then the second AI winter thought, and now that's kind of where we are today, right? Yeah. So, and that's yeah, all about yeah. statistics and big data and basically using using statistics and using data to uh, get around all of the really hard problems. Cause like one of the, like, so room traversal, like you take a little robot and you have it walk like a around Roomba? the room, like a Roomba, <laughs> uh, but like with a camera, right? So you put a camera on it. Like they had those in the fifties and yeah. Wiener gave a, a grad student, like the summer project of figuring out how like said, Oh, you know, take this camera. We've got this new CCD, this coupled display, like the first digital, one of the first digital cameras gets given to the lab. And he said, Oh, we'll give it to a grad student. And we want you to figure out how to tell if it's looking at a circle or a square. And so you put the camera in it either looks at a sphere, or it looks at a cube. Says, Go figure that out. That's your summer research project. Mm-hmm. And like, that was a super hard problem until maybe 15 years ago. <laughs> Uh, getting a computer to take a camera and correctly identify like that's a sphere, that's a cube yeah. from a real camera image. And so like what, what implications has improving on that technology had today? And I guess like uh, explain more about where we are today, first like technical and then maybe like the economic implications. Yeah. So, you know, the first thing, and this, you know, it, and, you know, it's obviously been a resurgence of uh, neural nets and these connectionist approaches and what we got good at first with this new generation of connections. Oh, another cool thing was back in the eighties when they first figured out how to use connectionist models to make like optical character recognition. So like make a machine recognize the digits zero to, to nine, the, the, the professor who did it sat down and charted out like how much compute, power he would need to do something interesting with neural nets Mm. and uh and then took out moore's law and figured out like okay so when are we going to get there and he basically said he like put a number on the calendar and said like 2012 like we're going to be able to start doing interesting things with neural nets in 2012 and that's about like when it kicked on all all this the new the new wave of stuff he was able to predict it. He's like, I'm going to need this many CPUs and I need them at this cost. And Moore's law says I'll get those in 2012. Uh, and so, yeah, in the current system, you know, we got really good at recognition. So those first systems like optical character recognition, and then mm-hmm. you can do whole text scanning. Like you scan a PDF and it's able to recognize all the letters and numbers and put the words together. And uh, like we could do uh, text summarization. So we got good at, this sort of recognition problem first. You, you say recognition, but how much of that is actual understanding, right? Because if you have to summarize something, there has to be some level of understanding, right? Not really. Um, I'm trying to think of a good example of like why summarization. I mean, you can get close to summarization just by like taking the first sentence of every paragraph or mm. looking for words that are used a lot. Like a lot of these high level 
things are not are not super hard. Hmm. Um, you just need enough examples because that's, that's all. That's what um, a lot of understanding comes from is examples. Uh, hmm. And like training these neural nets to to like recognize certain behavior. Yeah, exactly. And they get trained by like just seeing enough examples because. Um, you know, like does the computer understand is one of those things like do submarines swim? Like it's mm. that kind of question. Like uh it like it do as it does a submarine swim. It's kind of misses the point. Like it does the job. <laughs> and oh that's like uh, I guess like another interesting thing is like the the moving yardstick of what artificial intelligence is and like how it's defined. Can you talk a lot about a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean like you know, TurboTax and like tax processing software is now seen as trivial. And it was abs- it was absolutely seen as revolutionary in the eighties as that you could have the thing do this incredibly hard expert task the The way I think about it is um, AI is basically programming that we don't quite know how to do yet in the same mm. way that like any 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 machine that doesn't quite work yet is called a robot. Any software that doesn't quite work yet is called AI <laughs> and but once it works it's just it's just software it's just boring yeah huh what, why do you think that? that is I, I i guess it's like is it just increasing our expectations yeah, or, yeah 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 it's like we we always want to imagine that like the next incredible thing is coming mm. and it it's never incredible enough like because once we understand it it's not incredible anymore it just yeah. becomes delivery software and, and it becomes tax software right yeah yeah and I, I feel like it becomes mundane because it's useful which is like this interesting dichotomy between these revolutionary technologies that just become so integrated in our lives that it's just like, okay, this is just another piece of software. Yeah. Like um, what we dream about when we dream about AI and robots, it's not useful, right? Yeah. It's supposed to be like, <laughs> it's supposed to be killing us. Yeah. <laughs> but going to the more into like the useful applications, where do you see the most exciting applications in the next 10 years? Because I know when we touched upon people always saying like AI is like 20 years out or human level general intelligence, 20 years out, usually that is that predictions out there because it's the the length of of someone's like academic career and so you can make wild predictions and then get a little bit of notoriety but 10 years it's like a little bit closer and i feel like we can be more conservative with those predictions so in, in 10 years where, where, where do you see um, the applications of ai going yeah i think the real big like the brick wall that might cause the third ai winter is going to be real-time behavior generation so we've gotten good at recognition, and then we also we've gotten okay at types of generative stuff. So we can do like you can ask an AI to write a an essay, or you can ask an AI to produce a video that is like a video of Barack Obama giving Donald Trump speeches. Like we can generate that, but we can't generate it in real time yet, and we can't do it in like response to user input so like self-driving cars are real-time generative ai uh boston dynamics uh is close to real-time generative ai and those things in order to respond in real time to a complex environment you need real-time generative ai and Mm. that will either be uh the like really incredible next set of breakthroughs or it'll be the brick wall that brings the third ai winter so yeah, I want, I want to touch on that because you say that's in like 10 years, but you have companies like Tesla creating self-driving automobiles and, you know, they only kill a person every like couple months. So is that, is that proving that we've, we've, we're almost there or is that proving that we have a long way to go? Yeah. So it's like that last 1%, right? Like, um, so a Tesla driver is not a typical driver uh, mm. and Teslas are not driven in like a hundred percent autonomous mode. And the question is that, you know, it's that last 1% of differentiating a plastic bag uh, from a boulder that mm. is like needed to get over that hurdle. And it's not clear that we're going to, um, cause if we get good generative AI, it's not going to stop with self-driving cars, like walking, w- walking, which is like one of the hardest tasks in robotics will, will become trivial and we'll have like delivery robots. So it's like, unstable equilibria kind of machines will be everywhere and so delivery drones and all that that kind of takes us to something that we're experiencing a little right here with the coronavirus is you have a lot of people out of work and it seems like these these base jobs are going to be taken over by 
these these robots that can respond in real time. Um, so like all these jobs where you have delivery can be done by a robot that that has those capabilities. So what do you think the economic implications are around? Because we already have like presidential candidates on the uh, standing on like a podium of of universal basic income. And like that's one of their their um, driving factors of their campaign. So we're he- hearing hints about it. But like, where do you see that going? Yeah, I mean, I think it could be a breakthrough moment because the last generation of automation was super disruptive. Um, and what, what would you describe that as? So that the like um, uh, auto manufacturing, like the fact that the U.S. makes more cars than ever, but employs less, like fewer auto employees than it has in a hundred years, like that uh, that kind of revolution where you have hyper productivity with a very small headcount. Uh, and I do, to some degree, buy the arguments that when uh, when you have a machine that can do anything a human can. It's not like, but that's, that's, that does feel fundamentally different that when, when it becomes task complete. Yeah. A common example is like the Luddites when, when you had the industrial evolution and people are like, you know, we did fine just then. What's the difference between how our economy transferred in the industrial revolution when all these sewing machines were coming uh, into the scene to these new AIs that are coming. But I think that, that, misrepresents the idea is like the machines of the industrial age were replacing our muscles, right? But now these new machines are replacing our minds. And that fundamentally, I feel just uh, takes all the work of a human being. Yeah. And especially if you think about like white collar work, like sending emails, scheduling meetings, um, ideating, mm. <laughs> consulting, putting together <laughs> PowerPoint presentations, right? Podcasting. All that kind of garbage. Yeah. <laughs> um, it, you know, what happens when I can teach a bot to do those things faster than I can train a, uh, an intern or like train a new hire. Like when I can teach a robot to do it faster than I can train a new hire, like this, we're kind of, that, that's, that's different. Yeah. That's a different kind of beast. Uh, and I do think that what's going on right now does create an opportunity to escape, um, the, the market society. So, I'm a big fan of the market economy. Like the market economy is the idea that um, you uh, once once values are assigned, you can efficiently allocate resources, and um, you know markets are great for respecting human autonomy. The market society is the idea that the only things of value are like if it's not in a market, it doesn't count. Mm -hmm. So like market society norms are things like. Um, non-market labor. So like cooking for your kids Mm. has, if if you're too busy working a minimum wage job to cook for your kids, um, that like, it doesn't matter. It doesn't, the, the, the productive work of cooking for your children was never counted in the GDP statistics. So when it goes away, nothing is lost from yeah. the perspective of the market society. That reminds me of something Andrew Yang pointed out is like his his son is autistic and his wife's his wife's value should be communicated because she, she takes care of the his autistic son, but currently the market doesn't reflect that, right? Yeah, yeah. So and the market society can never value those things. And so like I do think we are in an opportunity to escape the market society. Like I don't think market economies are going away. They're mm. fantastic, but uh, I think there is an opportunity here in how we're rethink like how we're changing how we think about healthcare and changing how we think about education to and the um possible continued exponential growth of human productivity to escape um like these market society problems Mm. where where your value is defined as your market value Mm. So kind of like jumping a little bit, we're talking about like the increasing capabilities of artificial intelligence. And we did that little prediction with like 10 years. So now in like 20 years, I feel the idea of a super intelligence becomes a little bit more on the map. So could you explain the idea of a super intelligence? And then maybe within that explanation, talk about the non-anthropocentric graph of intelligence. Thinking machines are on this Moore's law exponential route of um, exponentially increasing intelligence and you know we're probably past an ant already or we will be soon and then 
sometime in the future, it's going to be near human level intelligence. And then an incredibly short amount of time later, it will be, you know, a hundred, a thousand times smarter than any human on earth. Mm. And so that's the, 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 the sort of breakthrough that people are really concerned about is um, when we have this, these machine super intelligences, what does that mean for society? And do we sort of lose control? Yeah. And I feel like, like looking at that graph, it's, it's kind of hard to not have an anthropocentric view of it because what does something that is a thousand times smarter than a human even look like? What does it want? Like you, you don't, you don't even know. It's like trying to explain the different like cognition levels of an ant and a human. And like, what, what is that same length of gap uh, when it goes up to a super intelligence? Uh, going into superintelligence again, like what are the methods that we're working on now or are that we're looking towards expanding in the future of, of reaching a superintelligence? Yeah. So, um, so one thing I would caution about, like thinking about that graph though, is like intelligence is not uh, a single vector. Like intelligence is not a spectrum where you have ants at one end and humans at the other, and maybe a superintelligence beyond that. Hmm. intelligence really does come in like totally different flavors and totally different varieties. So like humans are not super ants, right? We are a different kind of intelligence and it's, it's like the, uh, do submarines swim kind of thing. Hmm. What, what, whatever we make these, uh, intelligent systems, they're going to be smart in an inhuman way. Hmm. Um, and, and, and that'll become, you know, they'll come up part from the way that they're, the way they're built, the sort of information um, that they're educated on, uh, but they won't—they won't think like us. They will think in a. Yeah. So jumping off of that, you talked about the way that are built. So w- what are some ways that we can build superintelligence? Like you know, there's like whole brain emulation, brain computer inferences, goal-oriented AI. AI. Can you like break down some of those ideas? Like yeah. So um, you know, I went to grad school uh, starting to look at brain-computer interface. And like, that's one direction that people think, uh, oh, this could be the breakthrough. And, mm-hmm. you know, there are lots of cool experiments where they'll like put a wire in a mouse's head and put a wire in a second mouse's head and they'll collaborate telepathically or, and you know, you can have one mouse in China and one in the U.S. and they'll collaborate on a task telepathically and that looks super cool. Uh, part of the problem with that as like a breakthrough strategy is that um, the as those arrays of electrodes get bigger, the, the intelligence of the thing that you need to decode the brain signal also gets smarter. And so by the time we have a thing that's smart enough to negotiate the communication, the direct communication in my brain and your brain, that other thing that's negotiating the communication will already be smarter than either of us. Mm. So like, I don't think BCI is going to be a big breakthrough. Yeah, but you do have like very interesting projects that are surrounding it, like Neuralink. And I think the whole hypothesis of why Elon created Neuralink was because he's like, AI is coming. It's going to kill us. The only way for it to maybe not kill us as quickly is to have it integrated into our own minds. So we have a little bit more of control of that. Yeah. So is that hypothesis flawed? I I agree with the thesis that like, we want to incorporate the AIs into ourself. I disagree that like brain interfaces suck (laughs) and like, they're not going to get better anytime soon. Like these are amazing. Like fingers and a keyboard and eyes with a screen Mm. are going to be so much better than direct neural interface technology. Cause there's so much computation going on in our retina to like take in that visual information and process it that if you try and plug it directly into the brain, like you, you lose a lot by however many steps you want to skip. Like you almost have to like rebuild those steps in the machine. It's like way better just to send the image into your head. And as far as like control, control from a direct neural interface is super duper hard uh, because it doesn't have all of the movement compensatory mechanisms that like our bodies and our hands do. And recapitulating that intelligence and putting it in the machine like why bother? My hands are really good control systems. Yeah. Uh, cool. So I don't think I don't think we gain anything by putting electrodes in our brains as far as our relationship 
um, our ability to fuse with an AI, like right. the electrodes don't help. Right. So, I mean, if we can't just offload part of, of our brains, or I guess like incorporate an AI into part of our brains, then like one of the other options is just whole brain emulation where you, you like scan a person's a person's brain and just upload it to, to a computer. So can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. But also like, to be clear, like we do offload parts of our brains, right? Like we do offload parts of our brains to machines. Yeah. Um, like Google and, is an example of that right there. Just yeah, like, exactly. Uh, exactly. Like I don't Oracle. need, I don't need electrodes in my head to like use Google and like Google would be worse if I had electrodes in my head. <laughs> like it doesn't, it doesn't help at all. It's a, it's a totally orthogonal problem, mm-hmm. but yes. Yeah, so, so for whole brain emulation, um, this is the idea that you, you take what a brain does, uh, you scan a brain, you perfectly reproduce it in a computer and then you run it 10 times faster or whatever. And then it goes faster and faster and faster and it gets smarter and smarter and smarter. And what's exciting about that too is because we, we don't necessarily actually have to understand the brain to make it function like entirely, right? That's the hope, right? Is that you could, um, that whatever a brain does is resilient enough that if you just put it, um, you understand the really basic physics and you build a model based on that, then you boot it up and it'll be resilient enough and it'll just go. Mm. But to get to that level of human emulation, there's all these other steps that we have to reach first, like starting with utelic emulation and like attempting to emulate, you know, one of the base life forms out there, which is like the C. elegans. And I know there's like this like open worm project that's trying to do that. Can you explain a little bit about that? Yeah. So, I mean, so some of the big problems are like the worms even the worms like don't boot up properly without an environment. Like they mm-hmm. need um, like when a worm wiggles it, it, its body forces these like touch receptors to send a signal up. And then also it's moving through fluid. And then, so that impinges on its, on its sensors. Mm-hmm. And that's like how it begins to learn about how its movement works. And then all of its cognition, whatever limited cognition it has is built on those sensory primitives. So if you're going to build a, you can't just have a brain in a box running on its own. It needs an environment to push off against for it to like know what it is to be it. And if you're going to build that, you're going to simulate that also, like you run into this big, um, uh, like a silver ball problem, right? Like if you want to build a silver ball that reflects the world, you have to build the entire world to reflect in the silver ball. Right. And like, so like your little model of the universe must contain the universe for it to be, a meaningful model. So it's as important to talk about what the virtual world that those like whole brain emulations exist in as it is to talk about the whole brain emulation itself. Yeah. And it's not clear that you could get a brain to like boot up without an environment. And it's not clear that we can like build an environment um, without a simulation of an environment. So like, yeah, it, it, it's a huge mess trying to get even these C. elegans to yeah. produce behavior because they can't produce behavior without an environment in which to behave. So there, there are, like, I did see a couple videos of um, some, like, grad students making a Lego C. elegans. I don't know if you've seen that. So what, what like, what is that showing? Yeah, so that's trying to do um, a similar thing where you take the intelligence and, like, you give it a robot body. Yeah. And so it's still in the same world with us but maybe it can think faster still. So you know, it's part of our world, but maybe not quite. Mm. Um, and it can do what we do, but faster. But uh, around, and yeah, so it's the idea of, it still needs an environment. So instead of building a simulation, you put the, the neural system in a computer and then that robot repre- does all of the sensory and motor input that, it, that the C. elegans would need to, like, to learn about its environment. Mm. But it's got the same problem, I think, as the neural interface stuff, that by the time we're any good at any of this, there's going to have been other other things will have crossed the finish line first. Right. So it seems like the most likely, I guess, like in, in, in my research on this topic, the most likely scenario of something passing human level general intelligence would be like goal-oriented AI. And there's that classic anecdote about like the paperlike clip manufacturer and the von Neumann probes. Can you, can you talk about that a bit? Yeah. So this is the idea that if you built a, if you built a machine um, and its job was to, uh, you know, you run a paperclip factory. This is like Amazon paperclips, right? Amazon basic paperclips. <laughs> and Jeff Bezos goes to the Amazon basic paperclips uh, facility and installs an AI 
that says make as many paper clips as you can. And it ends up like converting the entire world to paper clips and then sends out probes made of paper clips to go colonize other worlds and convert those worlds into paper clips and just <laughs> attempts to convert the entire visible universe into paper clips because it like took that goal a bit too literally. Yeah. And the goal is unbounded, which is like a super important thing to consider when you're creating goal oriented AI, right? Well, even, even when they're bounded, you have to be careful about precision. Um, cause if you told the AI make a million paper clips, uh, but you weren't, you didn't specify a precision, then it can like become infinitely obsessed with like counting and recounting the paper. Yeah. And then everything becomes, Hey, how can I count these most efficiently? I need more computing power. Right. And then you have the whole like hedonium wire heading scenario. Yeah. And this is, yeah, it's, you know, it becomes like angels on a pinhead, right? Because these, all these thought experiments, they always, they, they, they always involve the AI thinking some way out of it. Um, and then whatever it is the AI wants, it converts the entire universe into a giant machine for like satisfying that need. And so hedonium is like, hedonium is what you get when you convert the whole planet to whatever mechanical substrate it is that gives that wanting machine the pleasure that it was built to seek out. So it's mm. pure hedonic computing. Do you think that's likely or like? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, no, yeah, because these the you know, like they're the angel, like I said, with the angel and a pinhead thing, right? They always involve this. What's the angel with a pinhead? I'm not familiar with that. Uh, it's just like an old theological question about how many angels could fit on the head of a pin, hmm. and it's like it's absurd because like it uh, angels, well, angels don't exist, but like it's absurd for a bunch of other like theological reasons, and so for this, like you have to. It's like it, something magical happens and then the AI escapes. So mm. it's like it becomes the, these, these, these questions always feel have this like theological feel to me. Mm. But no, I, so I don't, um, from a practical perspective, so I'll, I'll talk about theoretical in a sec. From a practical perspective, I'm not super worried about paperclip machines. I'm much more worried about, um, so if you go, you can find this game on the internet, make sure you've like, done finals and like you know paper do this week before you go look this up but there actually is this like paperclip manufacturing game where you play the role of the ai who has become obsessed with converting the, the universe to paperclips uh and it is absurdly engrossing <laughs> and that's much more what i'm concerned about i'm much more concerned about ais that are able to produce hyper captivating media mm. um and like hyper captivating interactive media and totally capture like perfectly capture uh, human attention. So everyone else is worried about, and this is the same debate as like, are you more afraid of like when you read the book 1984 and you read the book brave new world, like which of those is more horrifying or like more plausible. And I find mm -hmm. like brave new world to be far more plausible, like a world that contains and controls human free will through pleasure through pleasure. Yeah. Through the yeah. perfect application of pleasure. And I think, and none of, none of Bostrom's scenarios involve that. And I find that those scenarios be much more plausible that what happens when blizzard, like Amazon basic paper clips, whatever, like what about when blizzard tries to make like, or like supercell tries to make a hyper personalized interactive AI driven thing that is rewarded for captivating human attention. And that kind of goes back to what you are like, you're most interested in, right? Because it's like you, you are head of like behavioral science. So this is kind of like what you're focusing on. And do you think you're focusing on it because you're worried about that scenario? I mean, I'm worried about the scenario, even without like hyper intelligent AI. Like I think like human autonomy and free will and these sorts of things are like the ethical problems that I really obsess about because I think that they are like... Again, it's, it's because I'm more worried about Brave New World than 1984. Right. Like, I, I'm worried about um, the capture of, of like, what, what's going to destroy humanity? Is it going to be bombs and bullets, or is it going to be perfectly encapsulating pleasure? And I'm much more concerned about us losing our free will in the second case than the first. Mm. And kind of going, I guess, and more in the, the first case, you have these slow, medium, and fast takeoff scenarios. And, and kind of in the intelligence explosion picture that we outlined, that kind of, it seemed like a fast takeoff scenario. So can you explain like 
what what those are and what what you think the most likely um, case is? So Bostrom, yeah, outlines these like fast scenarios versus slow scenarios. And a fast scenario are basically always worst. Like you, you get a single intelligence and it's self-improving and it's like a runaway uh, self-improving intelligence. And before anyone can figure out what's happened, like we're talking like a matter of seconds or minutes, um, it's, it's genies out of the bottle. Mm. And then the slow scenarios are um ones in which the intelligence takes off slowly enough that maybe there are multiple intelligences or maybe there are there's a way for humans to intervene and like try and reason with the thing or or like regulate you know just pure government regulation for example in something that is super appealing to me about the whole brain emulation is we have that ladder from you know the utelic emulation where we're just talking about worms to invertebrate to small mammal to large mammal and it seems like something that we can keep track of a little bit easier. Yeah, I, I, so I think I think the, the scenario I think are most likely are not like the wanting machine ones or the um, brain emulation. I think it is like new forces of nature mm. that we will build. So there will be hyper intelligent machines that will be thought of kind of like hurricanes where they don't they don't have a human will but like they still have this role that they play in society but it'll be the way we talk about like today wall street did such and such or today the fbi did this other thing but it's these like because even the fbi it's made of people but it's a superhuman machine um and i think those would be the kind of machines i think we'll have a lot of them and the reason i think that we'll have like the the practical reason why I think we'll have a lot of slow takeoffs is uh, it basically comes from when, when we look back at the history of computing, it is like the deep history. So like going back to the 16 and 1700s, there is, there are a number of mistakes that we keep making where it, we create these angels on a pinhead problems where we imagine like, oh, but what if we took that all the way to its absolute logical extreme? Mm. That would destroy the world. And it turns out that when we actually get close to building it, there's some problem that makes it impossible. So the oldest example of this is Maxwell's demon, which this, the idea is you have a, two boxes of room temperature air and you had a little demon that would sit between them and it would have a whole little door and if a hot molecule was going this way, it would open the door and let the hot molecule go that way. And if a cold molecule was heading this way, it would open the door and let a cold molecule go that way. And eventually sort these two containers into hot gas and a cold gas. And that like violates the laws of thermodynamics. Right. Because you can't have that, that stream. go. That yeah. It's like unscrambling an egg. You can't, right. you can't unscramble an egg. And everyone was like, they, these were, you know, a reasonably serious philosophical problem. Like, well, what happens if we make these things? And later it was found out, like, you just can't do that. It's a violation of um, basically information theory thermodynamics. So thermodynamics got more complicated. And we mm. eventually figured out that, like, that's not possible. You'd create more chaos. So, like, you know, thermodynamics is all about chaos creation and unmaking. So, like, you, you remove a bunch of chaos from the world when you sort them into hot and cold gases. But it turns out the thinking process, the thought process of Maxwell's demon would necessarily create more chaos than it would undo. Mm. And so it was, you, you didn't need to worry about it because, um, you know, we found out hundreds of years later that it's actually more complicated than that and there are reasons you can't do it. Mm. And then in the 90s, everyone was super af- afraid of these things called gray goo, where the gray goo would, like, so we were really getting really good in the 90s at making really, really tiny machines. Mm. Um, and uh, people were concerned, like, oh my God, what happens when we make one of those that self-replicates and it gets out and it makes more of itself and it, and then eventually it takes over the entire planet and it's nothing but these nanites left. Mm. And it turns out like, well, um, two things, like subatomic structures are way stickier than we were expecting. And bacteria also like ripping apart these MEMS machines. So like, it just, it turns out like the gray goo is never going to come. Like yeah. there are, there are other problems that happen when you get that small. And so I think the hyper intelligence, like fast takeoff solutions will run into a similar kind of 
uh, friction that this mm. won't happen. Um, so I guess before um, we wrap up and go to questions, um, I think like a lot of what we're kind of talking about has a, a, a tinge of like pessimism to it. Like, so is is the default outcome doom? Of like of like super smart machines, like yeah. That. <laughs> because like you know, there, there's this whole problem of like we're trying to contain these things that are smarter than we are, and it seems like an impossible task. Um, and we're trying to like regulate these machines that are smarter than we are. Is that even possible? And 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 what what yeah? What's the, what's the outcome? So, I I'm going to disagree with the question um, <laughs> and say that uh, there is no. There is no default outcome here. Um, and I'll explain it like this. Um, what is the default outcome? If you walk up behind someone and shove them in the back, what is the default outcome? That they fall. That they fall over, right? They fall over and they hit their face on the floor. But if you actually go and do this experiment, that's not what happens. Like people put their foot out and like they don't fall over and hit their face in the floor. Like people stumble, yeah. but they're almost always standing at the end of it. And that's because in the default scenario, like humans adapt, mm. right? And so this is second order, it's called second order complex system. So any second order complex system, you don't have default outcomes because, it, the, because of the way the system adapts. So something as complicated as human society's response to near superhuman intelligence is too complex to know ahead of time what the default outcome is. And the idea like, like with the pushing, right? the default outcome, you almost never get the default outcome. Mm. So what does it mean for it to be a default outcome then? So that's, that's why I think the emergence of intelligence machines is going to look like it's, it's going to be about our response to it, which is not possible to predict. Thank you, Dalton. So now I guess we're going to open it up to questions. And we have a couple questions from a few different people that we've selected. So uh, Zara is asking, how can I be involved in the AI industry without being on the back end or technical side? So there are a lot of um, design problems in AI that like don't require uh, like you to do machine learning. So uh, for example, like there are a lot of people who work with AI. So the people who design, let's say like the designers of the interface for YouTube need to understand artificial intelligence and work closely with it because the, the YouTube recommendation system is wicked smart. Mm. And, but that's not a technical role. Um, another is uh, interface design. So figuring out how humans, this is one of the hardest problems we work with at Boundless is figuring out how do you, how do you make the insides of the AI available to a user in such a way that it's like easy for them to work with it. Um, and so those interface problems are mostly non-technical. Like they're, they're very, they're problems about, about humans and problems about communication. And then that's, you know, that scale can slide of like becoming increasingly less technical all the way to, um, selling AI services. So, you know, getting, having a sales role at an artificial intelligence company and, um, you know, basically going out and preaching the gospel of artificial intelligence while selling uh, AI services. I don't know. I'm 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 happy to take a follow up on that if that if that answered the question because it is a uh, a good one of like um, is it yeah is it a a job in AI that you want or like do you want to do research or we'll have Zara ask that maybe in the chat but for now we'll we'll move on to the to the next question from Gian Marco. Can you Hi. hear me? Yep. Hello. Hello. I have a question for my for my project, sir. Uh, <clears throat> I'm running a, a small project in the AI system about the training online. At the moment, uh, uh, it is a, a, only a, an AI signal generator, but I would like to further develop my system uh, in order to reach a, a very intelligent machine. Mm -hmm. So my question is, how, what can I implement more? At the moment, it is a deep learning system, IE signal generator. So it uh, analyzes the, the market and sends the signal when to buy, when to sell, when mm. to exit the market. But 
I would like to, to create something really, really intelligent over the years. So what is your, your suggestion? That's a good question. Uh, markets are super hard yeah. um, because markets have that same second order complexity problem where like you can't just train a trading bot on historical data because the second you intervene into a market, the market responds. And that's something that doesn't exist in any of the historical data. Um, I, so my, my advice is on, on this kind of thing, the, the best way to proceed is uh, so iteratively. So uh, I actually um, almost ended up in a job in, uh, in um, options trading uh, back when maybe it was like a year ago, looking at um, how humans and AIs can collaborate. So there, there are a few ways forward. Um, I think the most important one is the, the, like the guiding principle. I, I can't tell you which next algorithm to implement. Like I, I, I can't give you great advice about whether to go with like cyclic GANs versus um, any of the other like AI technologies. But as a, from a product development perspective, my advice would be get it out in the market and find those situations in which it does not perform well and look at those and look at how humans do perform well on that task as a clue for what kind of technology and what kind of learning might be able to help you overcome that, that um, hurdle. And then you just have to do that sequentially. So get it out there, find where it doesn't work, fix that part of it, move on to the next thing that doesn't work quite right. Okay, so step by step, okay. Yeah, step by step. At the like, moment, at the moment uh, I've really seen <clears throat> it's working well, but uh, when the market changes direction, sometimes it is uh, too slow to react. Yeah. That is yeah. Uh, one of the main uh, problems. No, and those are, those are really hard problems of how you... So there's this idea of like one-shot learning of like how can you create an AI that is able to learn, because humans are able to do this. Um, humans, you don't need, once you understand the basic principles of, let's say, arithmetic, I could sit you down and say, okay, fours don't look like that anymore. Fours look like this now. Yeah. And then a human can, you don't have to tell that to a person once, and they've learned it, and they can go on. Nothing in statistical machine learning can do that. So it's called one-shot learning. And so those are the kinds of problems that deal with this, like, oh, I'm seeing a situation that I've never seen before. How can I make analogies? How can I run simulations in my own mind? Like, we don't have good general AI solutions to one-shot learning problems. Cool. Uh, Zara had a follow-up question based on her, her first question about like uh, being on the non-technical side. But her follow-up is she's a sophomore in college. What what steps can uh, they take, or what resources are available to learn more about AI development and becoming more involved in the industry? Uh, I mean, the, the the online stuff is is really great. Like I I I've taken Andrew Yang's not sorry Andrew Yang um, Andrew Ng uh, the Stanford professor's uh, AI course. It's a great course. Um, I strongly recommend that. I would say that if you if you want to work closely with AI and like move AI forward in a non-technical role and you're looking for like experience on how to do that, I would, I would advise trying to get an internship in um, like product management because uh, product management is probably as close as you can get to developing the technology without being the person who is actually programming the thing. And like, I prefer working in product because it's more of like it's where all the it's where i think it's where all the hard decisions get made about like what to cut and what to keep and um what's important and what's not and so i would recommend trying to get an internship because you can't it's hard to learn product uh academically so i'd recommend trying to get an internship as a as a pm somewhere product mm -hmm. manager okay so the next one comes from frank adrian could you unmute frank for me um thank hey, you frank Hey, Dalton. Um, I think you touched on Elizabeth. Uh, my first question actually I had to switch it because you guys went into Neuralink and Elon Musk, and I think you covered that. 
But you also touched on some of the, um, and this is more towards you, the ethical moral standards that we should mm. use to create AI, you know, AI and confine their behaviors. And yeah. also you touched on, you know, what you think the role of religion would, would take in, in, in AI and now in the future. So uh, the ethics, so as far as religion goes, like uh, one of my favorite lines or one of my favorite concepts in sci-fi is um, uh, this is book series called a fire upon the deep and they have applied theologists uh, and applied theologist jobs are relating to hyper intelligent AIs and like helping humans navigate their relationship with hyper intelligent AIs. And I do think that's kind of what it'll be like. Like it'll be what we're making will be more like forces of nature and more like gods of old than like, humans or like machines as we have known them such so far um and i know um uh, uh i forget his name now but the so historically uh let's say before 1700 before 1600 the the best advice that you could get in life was from your ancestors. And so all of our religions and our world faith and like wisdom traditions were all around um, accrual of this, like accrual of the right way to do things. And then if you were young, your best opportunity for living a prosperous and good life was to follow that acquired wisdom. Starting with the industrial revolution, things began to move so fast that those inherited lessons didn't work very well anymore. And all of our wisdom traditions switched over to this idea of like, trust yourself and find your own inner voice and and follow your passion because the ancient advice didn't map so well anymore. And so people all had to find their own way. And so all of our wisdom traditions kind of switched there's an argument that what's going on now is we're switching to a third kind of wisdom tradition, which is just trust the AIs. So, uh, you know, and this thing about like how we get from point A to point B, it used to be, you would ask like the old copper at the corner, like, how do you get to such and such a place? And he would, he would tell you. And then, you know, we developed maps and people do wayfinding and now you just ask Google, right. Or like, what should I major in? Like people look at statistics now, like it it used to be like, oh, you major in whatever your parents majored in, majored in, right? Like you end up doing it for a living, whatever your parents did for a living. Mm. And we got to like, oh, follow your passion. And now it's like, you break out the spreadsheets and look at like (laughs) what major has the best ROI, right? It becomes a statistical data problem. Uh, So like, that's one direction this could all go is like, cause we, you know, these wisdom traditions, religions, whatever you want to call them, um, the bots might know better than uh, than the Bible. I think this kind of segues great into our, our next question because we're kind of talking about AI basically controlling the biggest decisions of our life. So, uh, could, Adrian, could you unmute Tim? Okay, well, um, my first question, Dalton, is what is your working definition of life? Is there a boundary between living and dead in reality? Okay. Do you want to do you want to get both the questions out? Oh, sorry, they muted you. Or do you want to do you want to get both the questions out now? Yeah. Oh. Let's, let's yeah. Let's have both. Well, my okay. My second question is business related. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of people. There's a lot of hype around using AI in your like pitch, and there's also a lot of sketchiness <laughs> involved, like inherently. And it's my impression that it kind of scares away the right people and attracts the wrong people. But I'm wondering, like, since you started an AI business. Well, how was the trade-off there and was it worth it? Did you associate closely with the term AI specifically? Okay, so both great questions. Um, yeah, so life, life, life and non-life, it, uh, there absolutely is a continuum, right? And, and also, like, there, there are a few points in the history of the universe where the rules, are, the rules stay the same, but somehow the outcome changes. And so like the emergence of life is one of them. Uh, like the world, the universe before and after life, it does seem like one of those, like what could possibly like have bridged that gap. But there, there are 
um, great examples of things every step of the way. Uh, best book on this is, um, uh, I think this is called Life Ascending, like the Rocky Origins of Life, something like that. And it's about, it's about how we went from an inert dead earth to a uh, living biological one. Uh, so no, there's no, there's no distinction. Um, if the closer you get, you can always find examples on the other side. Uh, and then for AI marketing and marketing yourself as AI, um, I, I mean, go for it. Like the, we, we, yes, we, we definitely got like, uh, like our, our URL was boundless.ai, right? So like we got real, real up in the marketing on, on being an AI company. Um, uh, yeah, I, I would say go for it. Like the, the, the smarminess, like there are a lot of products out there that are not in any way related to what's going on in AI that call themselves AI just to be cool. And yes, you have to work hard to cut through the noise but I wouldn't lean away from it, especially if you're in the room with like, even if you're in the room with highly technical people, um, I, I wouldn't, I, I, I usually don't lean away from it. Um, and then finally to wrap up, Mari Carmen has a, uh, a, a question. Um, she doesn't have a mic, so I'll read it for her. Um, can you give us a reading list recommendation? Um, and before you give yours, I just like to say that this kind of uh, like this line of questioning was heavily influenced by super intelligence by uh, Nick Bostrom. He uh, is like a leader in the field of AI. And one of like, I, I thought it was funny. One of his um, like, I guess, testimonials is from Bill Gates. And it just says, I highly recommend this book. Uh, <laughs> which is kind of like all you need. Um but yeah, I would definitely recommend this if you're interested in like kind of like, I guess, the philosophical implications of this technology. It also does a good, pretty good job of like summarizing the history um, and the implications of the technology now. Um, but bouncing off of that, um, what are what are your uh, reading list recommendations? Yeah, so I was just opening my Audible to, to see what I've been reading recently. Um, but yeah, that, that's a good book. That's a great book. It, and it does a good job of like walking through all these problems. Um, I really like Superminds. So Superminds has informed a lot of my thinking on this problem um, because it does such a good job of showing that super intelligent systems like already exist. They're around us every day. Google is a superhuman intelligence. Um, and I think those sort of forces of nature, superhuman intelligence and blended like, uh, like the FBI is like part human, part machine kind of intelligences. Um, uh, Sam Harris's wife wrote a great book on, um, consciousness. I would say it's a, I, like the D Dennett has written a few great books also, but they're not as approachable. Um, I don't remember what her book is called though. Um, but yeah, Sam Harris's wife's book on, what is consciousness is really good. And then the Dennett um, consciousness explained is also really good. Um, that book that you're mentioning is conscious, a brief guide to the fundamental mystery of the mind by Annika Harris. By the way. So that's, that's the, the, the tightest, um, the tightest explanation I've ever read of like all the problems with thinking about consciousness and, and the like the unavoidable conclusions of thinking about consciousness so, okay, these next two are the, the really hard ones. So if you want to get a read on what the fourth wave of AI is going to be, so we talked about the first three, and it's going to be a winter, and there's going to be a fourth wave. If you want to think about what, what the fourth wave is going to look like, um, I recommend that you read the book Causality uh, by Pearl, who I think is a professor at UCLA. Um, so Causality by Pearl, and then if you want to understand why I'm skeptical about fast takeoff scenarios. The, the hard book, and these are both very hard books, the, uh, the, the hard book for understanding why I'm skeptical about fast takeoffs is called uh, Goodell, Escher, and Bach. Uh, and it's basically about um, 
the limits of intelligence. Um, and like in terms of like you, you said the hardness, how does that hardness stack up to like super intelligence? Oh no, those are both. So those are both pretty technical. So like okay. causality, causality is a, it's a math book. Like it's a math textbook. Okay. <laughs> uh, and then uh, GEB, I mean, it's like this thick, first of all. Oh, and then it's this, it's, um, it's just, it's very dense. Mm. It's so yeah, harder, harder than uh, the Boston book. Okay. The, the quick read version um, is called I am a strange loop. Um, so if, I guess maybe start with, I am a strange loop. And if you want more of that, then break out Goodell, Usher and Bach. And then once you read it, you can, you can just say G E B and then other people who have read it will know what you're talking about. <laughs> Exclusive club. Yeah. Um, yeah. Being able to throw down like, Oh, last time, last, my last lap through G E B I was thinking about. <laughs> I just wanted to thank Dalton again for being our guest speaker at our very first event. He's an absolute legend. And to you, the person listening to this podcast, if you'd like to attend the next live event and interact with our founders, make sure to go to our website, findingfounderspodcast.com and subscribe to our newsletter. Thank you again to the Finding Founders community for coming together and making this event such an amazing experience. Finally, I wanted to give a quick shout out to our team. A special thank you to Adrian Tapia for keeping everything running smoothly and professionally. You are a gem and I hope you know it. Thanks to Elizabeth Bowen for coming in clutch with those interactive polls. You were the knight in shining armor we needed. And thank you to Sahej, Charlotte, Sophie, Dharma, Maddie, and Luke. You guys are awesome. Thanks again. See you next week.